0: Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult podcast. Tonight, we welcome the director of the new documentary, Desolation Center, Stuart Sweezy. Stuart, how are things?
1: Uh, alright, you know, uh, it it, it feels like, um, it's been a while since I got to
0: show the movie in a theater and all that. But, um, but basically everything's good. Well, speaking of the film... Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo was the inspiration behind the show, but had you seen Burden of Dreams before, and did you realize just how much of a disaster it could have been, and did that give you pause?
1: (laughs) Well, I I saw them as a double feature, which was weird, Um, and I honestly don't remember whether Burden of Dreams was first or, or Fitzcarraldo was first, but I guess I was aware... Um, you know that 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 things could could go awry, but I was also young enough to not really, you know, give that uh, a serious you know possibility that, that you know everything wasn't going to work out, even you know with all all the possible things that could have gone wrong on these shows. But um, yeah, no, I, I just I I think the part that that got me was you know the fish out of water, you know, taking opera and putting it in the jungle, and so for us, it was, you know,
0: taking this really urban music and putting it into the desert. Well, you spent some time in Berlin after the first show. How much anarchy did you witness in Berlin? Was there military actions in the streets and protests and demonstrations during your time there?
1: You know, I, okay, so that would have been um, the mostly summer and early fall of 1983. I don't remember any big protests. Uh, what, what I remember was more like day to day anarchy in the sense of, um, people living in squats, um, you know, squatted, uh, bars and, you know, like after hours places, um, you know, just more, um, people being free rather than, uh, I don't, re- the, the political stuff, I think maybe wasn't, uh, a, a, that was more of a late 70s phenomenon, is, is my feeling. Um, but, you know, the, the people that were there um, were there because a lot, a lot of times is because if you lived in Berlin, you didn't have to be in the German army. And they, they had, a, a, you know, conscription draft and all that. So it was more of a spirit for me of, 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 yeah, like anything is possible. Interpretation of anarchy rather than, you know, actual street fighting and stuff like that. Um, but then you were surrounded by the Berlin Wall. Uh, you were, you know, uh, so you really saw kind of uh, totalitarianism in action. Um, and at the same time, you know, um, it, for me, it was a real eye opener uh, about how politicized, you know, our our world was in the West. You know, watching East German news with people, you know. Um, you, you would see, like, the most, you know, something that they would totally ignore in the U.S., like, oh, there's a, a strike in Arizona, you know, but it would be, like, the beginning of the news in the East German news. And so I, just a lot of things, I think, made me think about things in different ways.
0: So how much of, like, America was being portrayed in, in like, the front headlines of, of Berlin? Would you say that America was a main focal point for their news back then?
1: Uh, You know, again, I, I think the biggest... Thing for me was, I mean, the West German news didn't seem that different than than our news here in the state. Um, it was being able to watch what was allegedly propaganda, you know, which was, you know, uh, I mean, uh, but it was the East German news that, that made me realize that, like, you know, uh, there's not a lot of objectivity. I mean, now it seems much more obvious, you know, when we're in the era of. You know, everyone at least here, you know, being in their own you know echo chambers and everything being accused of being fake news that is news and all that stuff. But um, I, I think you know uh, the military, U.S. military was also there on the ground in in Berlin. So you know there was Checkpoint Charlie, which is you know was a military checkpoint uh, to go in and out of, of between East and West Berlin in the Kreuzberg area. I think anyway, it was near. The part which is where all the, you know, uh, more radical sort of uh, and punk rock people were living. So, you know, it was just a, it was a crazy place. <laughs> it was, you know, uh, both a lot of fun and also very much like in your face, like all these sort of world issues were, were just being played out right there, you know.
0: Well, what were the audiences like in Berlin for bands like Collapsing New Builds?
1: Uh, for for collecting new buildings, I'm sure it's know about I mean, it was it was your, it was your kind of. I, I mean, this is going to be oversimplified, but <laughs> I don't know if you remember the Saturday Night Live thing of Sprocket, you yep. know, the kind of serious German art people, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit like that, um, you know. But 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 a li- little looser, a little more fun. But it was, you know, it was what I remember was the younger, you know, kind of hipper segment of of the population. Um, And uh, what really, you know, struck me in Berlin, in the same way that I remember things being here in L.A., was that, you know, uh, it wasn't okay just to be punk in in, in a very basic sort of way. Like, everybody was trying to do their own take on what that all meant by, by the time I was there by 83. And then you had you know, I'm sure it's annoyed about and come along with, you know, just so loud and, and just, you know, literally the whole place w- was shaking. You know, they, they were driving power tools into the walls. And I mean, it was just it was bonkers, you know. So I think it was just you couldn't help but either be impressed or get the fuck out of there. You
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Desolation Center, what a relevant film you have made, sir with all the police brutality still hitting hard right now, do you think the streets are gonna make some change this time around?
1: I kind of you know it's been an interesting what month I yeah. guess uh, of watching um, and and sort of uh, feeling like, yeah, you know maybe this time around it'll be different. Um, I don't know i can't I can't tell whether that's ebbing and flowing. Um, I, I do think that you know, America you know, has to have a a reckoning at some point with our, with our past, you know, and and I do feel like that's happening as to whether the actual police on the ground are going to change. I mean, I see stuff going on, you know, recently that's pretty disturbing, you know, so I think the LAPD is not as paramilitary as they were in the 80s, you know, so, I mean, I, I think there's, There's hope. And I I do think that the whole idea of defunding the police, at first it sounded like, wait, what? That's never going to fly, you know, uh, in America. But um, the idea that we don't really need them to do a lot of the things that they've been given to do and people don't need to show up with guns and all that, makes a lot of sense, you know. Um, So I, I, I uh, I think there's hope on that score, you know, and I think that that's really important.
0: Well, into the festival now, when you were coming up with locations in the desert, were you just driving around for hours on end, or were these locations fairly familiar to the group?
1: Well, really the truth is that um, Bruce Leisher, who was the founder of Savage Republic, and, you know, uh, they were one of the two bands along with the Minutemen that played at our first desert show. So that was a place that, I had the idea of playing out in the desert, and that's about as far as I thought it out. And then I, I got a hold of Bruce, who I didn't really know, but I'm like, I'm a big fan. You know, I, I put on some shows around some, you know, somewhat, you know, rem- desolate spots around LA downtown. Back then was was pretty uh, much of a wasteland. Anyway, so Bruce was like, oh, I know a great spot. Um, you know, it, it's a dry lake bed, and, and I didn't really question any much further than that. We just drove out there, and I'm like, this is so beautiful, you know, like, this is perfect. And um, it turns out that he had, I guess his dad was into, like, uh, gliders, you know, ultralight, you know, planes, and so he had been out there, and you know, it was the kind of place where you would have, like, a a motocross race or something like that. Nobody used it for for what we used it for, Um, but but So that wasn't a lot of exploration. It was more just like, let's go there. And then the next time, when I started to know about and came, and I had a very limited amount of time to find another location, I didn't want to go back to the same place. I wanted to find a, a different vibe. And it really was just al- almost like, uh, I wouldn't say random, but we were just looking at the map out in the desert, and there was a place that said Mecca. <laughs> and so we were <laughs> like... Well, wow, it's calling to us. Let's go there. And then we, it, it just one thing led to another. And then we found a, this uh, closed road. Closed road led to this amazing looking canyon. And then we're like, this is it, you know, but not really knowing whether the closed road sign was going to keep away, you know, the authorities or whatever. And we weren't, certainly weren't supposed to be there. Um, but then it turns out that, that there is a name for that area called box canyon i mean i found all this out later working on the film and that you know people in the area were familiar with it as you know kind of like a spot i don't know uh maybe to have a barbecue or something like that but um it so so and then the third show that we did in the desert was Kila monster jamboree with sonic youth and the meat puppets and red cross and psycom um we went back to the first location (laughs) like that was that was cool let's go back there but we used a different part of it, where there was more like a rock formation. So, uh, because I really felt like we needed some place that was a little closer to the city, just because the, the drive out to the place where we did the Noid show was so long to have everybody on the bus and stuff. I mean, it was great; it all worked out. But you know, so so basically, I didn't spend a lot of time scouting. Um, more or less, just sort of stumbled into these locations.
0: Well, it's funny that you mentioned the buses, because they are such an integral part of the entire festival. Did you have any direct contact with those bus drivers? I know that they were coming from church, but how much were they actually confused, and what were they doing during the shows?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I have to say, I had more contact with them on the way out, and sort of figuring out where are we going to stop, like, uh, making, you know, making sure that they were okay with, with driving these school buses out onto the dry lake bed and that kind of thing. Once the show started, I have to admit, I, I was more focused on the music and, and, you know, the PA, as limited as it was, and stuff like that. Or in the case of the second one, you know, Mark Pauline setting off explosions. So I didn't really get a chance to, like, get the vibe of what they thought of the whole thing. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, looking back on it, um, you know, I, I probably checked in with them a little bit, but basically, you know, I think they were like, this is really weird, but I guess that's what these kids are, these days, you know, kind of thing. That was my feeling is that they're like, well, this is better than our usual, you know, school bus gigs, you know, or summer camp or whatever else they, they, they would have been doing. So, I I think they were probably tripped out, but not as much as like stories I've heard about like redneck people showing up in pickup trucks that thought they were going to, you know, do some shooting. And then they saw like these bonfires and explosions and crazy noises echoing around the canyon and they just took off. Um, I think that because the bus drivers were with us the whole time, they kind of saw it all kind of play out. So it didn't seem quite as totally out of control as
0: it was. Well, did the Sonic Youth show feel different at all for you? Could you feel that if you continued this, that the audience was about to become even bigger?
1: You know, I I wasn't so much thinking about that at the time. Uh, I I don't think that any of us really looked at any of those bands, you know, like Sonic Youth, Red Cross, Meat Puppets, or that Perry would go on to do, James Addiction, as being big. You know what I mean? It was more just like, um, what a great lineup. And wow, we got a bunch of people out here. So I didn't really have a sense of like, oh, this could become huge. It was more like, okay, how can I top this? She was so rad. You know what I mean? Um, and Sonic Youth were so great at, you know, um, and, and the meat puppets were so psychedelic, you know, and, uh, So I just was kind of like, I'm I'm not really going to do anything that'll be better than this. So maybe this is a good time to stop. That was more my attitude at the time.
0: Well, did you film the entirety of all those Desolation Center shows? Or were the clips that we saw the majority from the footage?
1: Right. So um, obviously the first one, we didn't have any any film footage of. The second show, um, I, I, I thought, you know, it was covered really well uh, in terms of the whole drive out there and the setting up and things like that. But, you know, um, not everything was c- captured. Um, but, but pretty much the whole button set uh, was filmed, uh, you know, videotaped. And um, then uh, and a little bit of interviews uh, with, with people afterward. Um, but the last show that we did, uh, with Sonic Youth, uh, pretty much all of that stuff was was videotaped, and um, it takes. I mean, I knew that the Sonic Youth footage existed because they released it in the early '90s as a VHS tape. So um, you know, the, and and that stuff's up on YouTube. Um, and but uh, I didn't realize that like the whole Red Cross set existed on video. That that Sycom, you know, uh, the Meat Puppets, you know. <laughs> I mean, they were playing and then they're like, turn the lights out, which at first I was like, why are we turning the lights out? Then I realized like, oh yeah, it's a full moon. Like, this is so cool. But um, because of that, there's not a lot of footage of, of the Meat Puppets set. But um, yeah, you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of stuff, you know, we, we kind of, we're trying to tell a story. So we, we picked things that we thought worked as, as highlights, but there's a lot more footage.
0: Well, was it fairly easy to track down the original players like Perry Farrell again for the documentary, or was it a bit of a struggle to get the film made?
1: It really was a, a range from people that were just very, very, you know, open and and really wanted to participate, um, to people that were tougher. And and you mentioned Perry. I mean, actually we had finished the film um, and I found some footage of Perry talking about the shows, but I hadn't been able to interview him Uh, just for whatever reason, looking back on it. I mean, uh, you know, I was in contact with his manager. I didn't really know how to reach Perry. And then, uh, we were in the slam dance festival and I know you had, you had Paul Rackman on your uh, show before. And, and so I was there in park city. We'd had our first screening, Uh, which is around, like, noon on Friday. And then Paul's like, hey, Stuart, you know, Perry Farrell is in town. He's, you know, uh, he was, like, looking for virtual reality artists for this project that he has going in Las Vegas, but he's also snowboarding, whatever it was. (laughs) Because then you should get Perry to come to the screening. Anyway, long story short, I was like, I've been trying to get an interview for years. I, I can't promise anything, but I'll send him one tweet. And it turns out that you know Perry is pretty into Twitter, and so by the next screening, um, he came and he did the Q and A with uh, Mariska and I. And Mariska used to be in Psychom with Perry, an earlier version of it. So it was it was it was pretty intense. And then I think seeing all those people, seeing the whole situation, he realized that you know he really wanted to be in the film. So we did an interview, and then we recut it. Um, for for the version that's out now so that we could... And I I thought the stuff he had to say was great. So, I mean, I'm really happy that we were able to bring him in. I think it makes the film work a lot better. It was also like, you know, a good chance to tweak things that I wouldn't have maybe had the opportunity to otherwise just because we're getting back in there and, and recutting and stuff.
0: Well, why did you decide now, or should I say a few years ago, to be the best time to start telling this story?
1: Um... Yeah, I think that uh, part of it was just getting around to, like, you know, um, what is it that I want to do? Like, I've, I've got these different experiences from, from having produced a music documentary, Better Live Through True Circuitry, working in reality TV, uh, doing a lot of what they call sizzle reels, you know, really, you know, trying to create things to present ideas for shows with very limited budget. And then also, like, so I felt like, okay, I could make my own documentary now. Like, I, I've, I've learned enough. Um, and, and, and some of the people that I worked with on this were people that I met through that whole process. But also, I, I think um, it really had, had to do with me loving music documentaries and, and wanting to make one. <laughs> and then realizing through another music documentary director, uh, a guy named Jörg Steinek who lives in Berlin, but he made a, a whole documentary about the desert rock scene, uh, which kind of emerged after the stuff that I, that I was involved in. But he was like, I need to interview you for my documentary. And then and I totally understand how this goes. Then it became like, wait a second, I don't really need to know how to fit. This is a whole other story. But he hit me at a time when I was starting to think about music documentaries. So, Then I started researching Desolation Center, uh, as as funny as that might sound, online and realizing that these things had taken on this legendary status. And I realized that there was a good story here and
0: that, um, you know, if I didn't do it, nobody else would. Well, what did you find to be the hardest part of the filmmaking process for your first feature?
1: I think for me, on a, on a creative level, the hardest part was figuring out how to introduce myself into the film. And, 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 and it was uh, kind of a struggle um, because, you know, in the one sense, this is telling a story that I was very involved in. I mean, I was organizing all these events and stuff, but I also didn't want it to be about me, and I really wanted it to be pulled from all these different people's points of view, and weaving that together as a story. And it was also, you know, to me it was about a time, you know, uh, of DIY culture, and people really uh, pushing the bounds of, of, you know, what was possible in terms of music, and and sort of performance, and things like that. So then I was like, okay, this is all coming together, but like, how do I appear in it? You know, Um, and it's actually... Again, this guy, Jorg, uh, was a big inspiration because I was there in Berlin. I was interviewing Blixa and the other people from Neubauten, and and then he showed up from wherever he was in Germany before that. And uh, he's like, well, you know, you're not going to be back here, so you better start shooting your own interview stuff. And I'm like, of course you're right, but, you know, like, how do I do that? Anyway, so uh, long story short, I had a crew there with me, you know, a, a DP and a sound guy. So we just started going around and doing it. And that kind of got me, forced me to start thinking about how do I tell the story, you know, without making it all about myself, That which I, you know, I was always trying to strike that balance.
0: I heard that there was a snake waiver attached going in. Uh, what was all included in this? And looking back, do you think that you would have done more in terms of the liability wording on the tickets?
1: Okay, so that was something that uh, my friend Mariska came up with. I think by that time she was working on music video shoots and stuff like that, um, and she just said, "Well, we got to have people sign." You know, I think it was the last show we did that we finally put some kind of waiver in there, um, but it was kind of a joke. Like it wasn't written by lawyers, and there was no real. You know, uh, it was more just a way of telling people, "Look." you're kind of on your own out there don't blame us for what happens um it's more of a wake-up call than a than a serious legal thing um but yeah you know um we're talking about city people that often had not actually been out to the desert and and so we just you know i think we we wanted people to, to kind of go out there with their eyes open and, and you know be willing to take care of themselves
0: well, did you know about Perry Farrell being on the Hill when the SRL guys were about to try and blow it up?
1: I heard that story later, um, and uh, it, it's hilarious. You know, um, I, I I really, uh, you know, it's just one of those funny things that, that, you know, you can't be everywhere. And I had no idea what Perry was up to at that particular moment. I was probably, you know, focusing on, you know, whether, you know, Boyd Rice, you know, had the... A, you know concrete you know cinder block thing on his chest or not or god knows what you know was what i was thinking about at that moment and i don't think i even knew going into it to the degree to which survival research laboratories were going to be setting up you know charges and, and and i certainly yeah wasn't aware of where Barry was at that particular moment but yeah i mean uh you know the, the story goes that you know he saw these people waving to him and he thought they were just saying hi cause he was up on a cliff and he didn't realize they're like, yeah, you better get off of that cliff. Cause you know, there's going to be a giant explosion that uh, is going to roll. supposedly we going to roll this boulder down the hill, but they didn't quite get up to that level of, of uh,
0: force. Did the joy at sea show worry you at all because the stage wasn't built until the morning of the show?
1: Yeah. So, um, it definitely worried me and, and, uh, I was—I really didn't have access to this whale watch boat until right before the show, because uh, we were renting it by the hour, and, and so we had to bring all our stuff down there uh, to Redondo Beach, where where it was docked, and then move it to uh, San Pedro. But again, you know, I—it was probably a little wacky to do it the way we did it, where the boat was going and we're building the stage at the same time. I mean, but it was all because we really uh, were doing everything for the first time. And so, you know, you, you learn <laughs> as you go. But um, I, I, uh, I think everything about that stuff sort of stressed me out. Like, would the stage hold the band? And, you know, like, like Aaron was saying, you know, would it hold D Boone and D Boone jumping up and down? Because like, you didn't want to cramp his style, you know. And also, would it hold the amps, uh, which had to be lashed down? And you know, um, but also, like, would the boat keep people that were slam dancing and drunk from falling into the harbor? I mean, all those things—things that things should have been worried about. But um, you know, I think we just figured it all worked out.
0: <laughs> I'm really curious about the sound on the Joy to See show. Do you think it was better than The Desert Shows, or do you think that The Desert Shows, by the third one, you kind of got the sound where you wanted it to be?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, we used the same guy at Sereno and his PA um, for uh, all of those shows, um, and so I don't know that it was noticeably that different, but but um, obviously the environment was different. And what I do remember about the sound was a particular moment when when the, the boat went under this bridge that goes between San Pedro and Long Beach and meat puppets were playing and it was echoing under that tunnel and it just sounded so cool, you know. So in a sense, I think the PA was the same, but the environments were different. And, and so rather than sound getting sort of lost in a sense out on the dry lake bed it was more bouncing around this environment and so yeah I, I, it might have it might have been a little bit better in some sense um, but basically uh up until the last uh desolation center show that we did which wasn't in an outdoor environment was, was with the swans and sonic youth and saccharine trust um and some other groups in a, in a warehouse in downtown. We had rap sound who used to do all the Black Flag shows, and now they do, like, Coachella and stuff. I mean, so we had an amazing sound system for Swans, <laughs> which is a good good way to hear them for the first time for me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, that was a, that was a different sort of setup. I mean, Ed was amazing in the sense that he was willing to go to all these crazy spots and, you know, just make it work, you know.
0: Why do you think that shows like this aren't happening anymore? Or do you think that they are, and we're just not hearing about them?
1: I mean, I think it's a little of both. I do think that, you know, um, there are people that do small-scale things, and, 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 you know, you don't necessarily know about them. Um, Maybe they're not, you know, uh, publicizing them or things like that. But a lot of people I know, like, that, you know, that i have met. So we've done a couple of screenings at Desolation Center out in the area, you know, uh, near where we did the shows. We did one in, in Palm Springs at their art museum and another one in a kind of near Joshua Tree in, in, in some basically somebody's cool uh, art space. And so I met a lot of desert music people and I don't get the feeling that, that they are doing a lot of that stuff like they used to. I think it's... It, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I just think things come and go in waves. And, you know, I, I hope I hope that the film inspires people to do, you know, coming out of this whole lockdown situation we're in now, to do more uh, spontaneous things, you know, even if the music is completely different than what's in Desolation Center. I mean, I, when I worked on Better Living Through Circuitry, that was sort of still early days of, of rave culture here in North America, not so much. Uh, in the UK. But um, you know, and I went out to one of the desert parties, so it was all DJs and uh and some live electronic music, but I felt this connection to it because there's just something great about taking music and, and, and putting it into these kind of environments. So I I just think that there's also there was something about kind of the way things worked out that you had these fantastic groups like the Minutemen and the Meat Puppets and Neubauten and Sonic Youth and Red Cross, you know, that, uh, and Savage Republic too, that just, it was just a moment, you know. So 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 part of it, I think, was also just how kind of uh, innovative and, and, and um, risk-taking the music was along with the, the, the environment.
0: Well, what performance would you say blew you away the most?
1: I got it I mean, I have to say for me it, it, it I'm sure it's I am sure to about and you know, just because it was it was so visceral and um you know, just kind of like the culmination of a lot of different things from having done one desert show and then, you know, meeting them in Berlin and everything coming together and having, you know, Mark Pauline's whole uh explosion thing going on as like an opening act but they really delivered i mean they really just created this sort of uh transcendent primal thing that i think was part part and parcel of the reason why i was doing these things was to take people out of their everyday lives and everyday sort of ways of even seeing live music and so the whole the whole thing really came together but individually i mean there was amazing performances by you know all all the different groups but um that was probably the most special for me
0: well what do you think about shows like the fire festival that seem to be in the same diy spirit just catering for an incredibly different audience in the very rich and not picking up on any of the lessons from what you guys did in desolation center
1: in the DIY spirit. I mean, I think they were trying to create a festival, but I mean, festivals have existed before Desolation Center and after. I mean, you know, there's Woodstock, there was the, you know, Reading Festival, um, things like that, and I think they were just trying to make as much money as possible, and you know, getting all these Instagram influencers, and and not doing the sort of the back-end hard work of, 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 you know, infrastructure and, 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 and sort of having all that stuff figured out. So, um, fire festival to me is a fascinating train wreck. And I really enjoyed watching the, the documentaries about it. Um, but, uh, I really feel like what we were doing was sort of in the spirit of independent music, you know, um, independent labels, zines and all that stuff. It was taking, taking the means of, of presenting the music into the hands of, of, the, of the fans and of the artists uh, who are doing it. So, yeah, sort of the opposite of Fire Festival, um, where they started, I think, from a point of view of, uh, you know, how can we make as much money as possible?
0: <laughs> well, was there always a certain band that you always wanted to work with that never really had the opportunity to?
1: You know, uh, I really, I mean, you asked me, like, you know, how did I feel after that Gila Monster Jamboree show, which was the last desert show that we did, and I, I kind of felt like, yeah, now I've worked with everybody I wanted to, because, like, after seeing the meat puppets on the boat, I was like, oh, man, we got to do the meat puppets in the desert, you know? And then knowing that Sonic Youth uh, were going to be here in Southern California, you know, anyway in in, in uh, January of 85. so So those were, like, a couple of different kind of bucket list things that that, that came together on that night. But um, looking back on it, had I been aware of how crazy those live butthole surfers shows were, um, they'd been more on my radar. That, that's somebody I'd love to put on a show out in the desert with in that era.
0: Well, do you keep up with the local scene at all these days? And what are some new bands that are really blowing you away?
1: You know, uh I, I keep up in the sense of, like, I, I go out, or I was, up, you know, uh, until until everything got shut down. Um, but a lot of times it, it's people that I know that are in bands or, you know, um, things from out of town that are more of the era of, of, of when I was doing the Desolation Center shows. And I've seen some, some great shows, um, but as far as new... Uh, things that really blow me away. I mean, I just don't have anything on, on the tip of my tongue right now. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's, it, um, I've seen some really cool uh, work where, you know, they, they, they were combining sort of performance with noise and things like that. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't, I don't really have anything I can really point you to, um, but I am impressed, you know, with, with some of the local Promoters and you know that people are trying to do some innovative stuff that I've met through through having released the film and and um, so you know I, I'm I'm uh, optimistic that that there is serious cool stuff going on but I yeah I I don't have anything that I can say like yeah check this out I still go see something like uh, this heat you know which was already you know had existed by the late seventies you know. And I see what they're doing or what or what Swans are doing now, and I'm still super impressed, you know, these guys that can keep it going for, you know, 30, 40 years and still, you know, still really noisy, still really transcendent. So that's been in, an interesting evolution for me, you know. Um, but as far as new, new, uh, yeah, I, I don't really have anything to to point you to right now.
0: Well, finally... What can we expect to see from you coming up?
1: Well, I um, am one of the uh, you know one of the other things that that I done after the Desolation Center show was uh, my amok books, uh, which was a publishing company. But also, we we, we sort of before the internet really uh, conveyed all this information, we we were a way for people to get subversive books and zines and things like that. And one of the books that I published from Slovenia, Leibach, and and it was about this whole art movement that they were a part of, New Slovenian Art, Neuslovenische Kunst. And the reason I bring all that up is that there's one of that group who was their theater director uh, named Dragan Zvedinov, who's also a trained cosmonaut. And so I'm I'm working on a film project with uh, a Slovenian director, Dragan, uh that I'm actually going to be producing and, and, and sort of presenting his whole... It, it's sort of like um, what we're calling a futurementary. So he's going to be um, going into outer space uh, permanently as part of this 40-year uh, theater project. And so um, we're hoping to get... Well, I mean, the production has started on it, but um, I think that's something that that um, I'm really excited about. Um And, um, yeah, the whole process of doing Desolation Center is ongoing. Uh, You know, um, we we probably are going to do another uh, small-scale desert show um, with some of the people that, you know, uh, when when we can, when we can, you know, no no particular time frame yet. Um, We're going to be releasing the DVD version of this, and so we're going to be putting together, you know, a, a lot of new, special feature type things that we weren't able to fit into the film. So, you know, um, hope to continue making films and also, you know, continue the desolation center concept. Now that we're back out in the world.
0: Do you enjoy producing more than directing?
1: Uh, no, I would say, uh, I I learned a lot by producing a a music documentary. Um, but directing, I think is, is, really what i like to do most. Um, and it's, Taking me all these years to get to this point of being able to say, oh yeah, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I can do this. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, given the opportunity, I, I think that that's what what I would like to be doing more of. You know,
0: would you say that film played a, a big role in your youth, on top of the music?
1: I think that back then, you know, um, going to see a sea of film. Was, was, was a big deal. You know, it wasn't all streaming at you. I mean, yeah, you could see movies on late-night TV, but um, something like going to see Eraserhead or, or Fitzcarraldo, Well I didn't do it all the time. When I did, those were just very, like, uh, sort of pivotal experiences. So I would say yes. Um, what the music that I heard, you know, soundtrack music in films and, and sort of just the whole... Uh, the ideas and, and the ways things were presented had a big impact on me. And I think that that's what I was maybe trying to do with Desolation Center, was to create something more cinematic, but as an experience rather than as a film, You know, because that, that's what I had the resources to do back then.
0: Thank you so much, Stuart, for taking the time out of your incredibly busy streaming launch uh, to speak with me. I really appreciate it. The film is absolutely fantastic, and I hope everybody goes and checks it out. Desolation Center is currently available on iTunes. Is it available anywhere else currently? Yeah,
1: actually. So so now uh, we're streaming on Amazon. Uh, you know, if you go to, to our website, you can see the other ones. Uh, there's Vimeo On Demand and Dango Now and Google Play, but... Um, yeah, thank you. Man. It was such a pleasure talking with you, and you know, just um, you know, being able to kind of get into some of these topics, and and um, so, you know, uh, keep keep up the, the good work with the, with the podcast as well.
0: Well, thank you because it it really is one of the. It was one of the more exciting music documentaries I've seen in a really long time. I put it up there with the uh the new Brainiac documentary about that band from the 90s. Both of them, mm-hmm. I both of them I think everybody should go see. They're really fun, they're really enjoyable. It brings you to a time that a lot of people forget about, a lot of people missed. And uh yeah. I really hope everybody goes and checks it out. I really enjoyed the film and uh again, thank you so much for for spending some time with me today.
1: Well, awesome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Stuart Sweezy once again. It was a pleasure to chat with him, and I hope that we see him in the director's chair a lot in the upcoming future. Make sure to check out the documentary Desolation Center on iTunes, Fandango Now, Google Play, Amazon, and Vimeo. Or if you prefer physical content like myself, Make sure to keep an eye out at DesolationCenter.com where you can currently find some really cool merchandise. The film is awesome and really captures a lost moment in history that deserves to be showcased. So go have some fun with the movie and get out to the desert or just start playing some shows outside and help continue art within nature. This concludes our broadcast day.